0: If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to uh, Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, we're going to be looking at verses 11 to 19 in our time together this morning. That's Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. One of the things that um, I'm reminded about with the devastation that we've seen in Haiti Haiti over the last uh, couple weeks is that we in the West in America in particular, tend to be buffered from some of the pain and sorrow which is prevalent in the third world countries around the world. Um, and and, and not, not just around the world today, but if we would go back 2,000 years, so much of the world that we would see and know would be marked by suffering and pain, much more than what we experience in America today. We, we we are truly a blessed people more than we can possibly imagine in the ancient world it was not at all unusual for one nation or one one uh, for battle to occur and they would move into an area and they would just decimate that area around the harvest season and those people would starve i mean th- this is this is just the the way it worked and then pestilence came in and and then the famine, and then the sickness, and the illness. They didn't have antibiotics. You know, they didn't have so many of the medical miracles that we experience today. So when Jesus comes into the world, he comes into a world marked by deep pain and sorrow. We catch a glimpse of it here in Luke chapter 17. In this particular text, ten men approach Jesus who are lepers. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus has dealt with lepers. Back in Luke chapter 5, an individual leper comes to Jesus Christ. And in that situation, it's very, very interesting. It doesn't happen that way here. That situation, the Bible says this man falls down, comes right up to Christ, which technically he shouldn't do, should he? Because lepers are always supposed to be distant distant from Christ. But this man was desperate. He comes and he falls down before Christ and he says, please heal me. The Bible says Jesus reaches out and touches the unclean. Now, everywhere you read in the Old Testament, when clean touches unclean, everything becomes unclean. But in Jesus Christ, everything is reversed. When the clean touches the unclean, the unclean becomes clean. That's Luke chapter 5. Now, this text is a little bit different because they don't actually come directly up to Jesus Christ. Listen to what it says in verse 11, Luke chapter 17. The Bible says, And it came about while he was on his way to Jerusalem that he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. All through Luke's gospel, when you see the term Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, it's not merely a chronological indicator. It's much more than that. From Luke's perspective, it's all about the fact that what Christ will do in Jerusalem will change the world forever. He will come. He will die. He will be buried. He will resurrect. And then he will be, be the, the, the ascended Lord. And all from in Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, he will tell you what that looks like in the church. So when you see this statement, he was on his way to Jerusalem because that was his mission. And that's where everything would change for us. And he's passing between Galilee and Samaria, so he's actually going to be working through Samaria. Sometimes the Jews would go around, but often they would go right through. Notice what happens in verse 12. As he entered a certain village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. Now, Often when we see hear the word leprosy in, in, in the scriptures, we're thinking of its, its very worst form, I think what we call Hansen's disease. And, 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 and often that was the case with people that would get, but, but the term leprosy is just kind of a catch-all term for all kinds of skin disorders and diseases. That would include what we typically repre- call leprosy itself. And, and yes, in its worst form, uh, there would be the oozing, there would be the deadening of nerves, there would be infections, there would be you know parts of your nose and fingers would fall off. yeah, yes, yes, that that's true in in its worst form, but it included something really quite broad it but 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 what it meant, regardless of what form it took, what it meant is that you were absolutely hopeless and helpless. Let me read a passage to you from the book of Leviticus. As, as Moses speaks about this to the people, listen to what he says in Leviticus 13, 45 and 46. As for the diseased person who has the infection, talking about this, these, these skin disorders and diseases, listen to what it says. His clothes must be torn. The hair of his head must be unbound. You can't wear it up in a turban or anything. Just, no, no, nothing like that. He must cover his mustache. It's almost a way of... Preventing people from you know breathing on other people and so forth, you cover yourself here, and he must constantly call out unclean, unclean. The whole time he has the infection, he will be continually unclean. He must live in isolation, and his place of residence must be outside the camp. Folks, could it be any worse than that? Do you ever wonder? what these 10 lepers, what their previous life was like? I I don't know. I mean, I I don't know. Well, we'll find out in heaven. But you know, when you get these kinds of skin diseases, and you're isolated from friends and family, and you're put into these groups, it's with people that you might never choose to actually hang out with normally. What brings you together is your disease. And so perhaps perhaps there was a doctor in the midst, a, a merchant, a peasant a farmer, a fisherman. I don't know. But you have the the most unlikely bunch of individuals, and the thing that brings them together is their pain and sorrow. That's it. Every day you get up, and you look at your hands and your skin, and you say, I'll never see my kids again. Oh, if I do, it's from a distance. Never be able to embrace my wife. Never be able to do the job that I love to do. I mean, it just... It doesn't get any worse than that, does it? So the Bible tells us these ten men stand at a distance. And Jesus is passing through the village. And look, when you're desperate, you'll try anything, won't you? And so they hear Jesus, the Messiah one, and they've all heard rumors about the healing. And whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter. You try it. So from a distance... The Bible tells us, listen to what they say, verse 13. They raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Let let me just mention something here, because I I don't know if this is the case, but sometimes with with leprosy, a form of leprosy in its worst form, it affects your vocal cords, so that when you speak, everything is really, really hoarse. I I don't know if that's the case, but but, but if, if that's the case, What Jesus would have heard possibly from some of them is kind of a shrill, hoarse request coming from these desperate men. You know what's strange? At least for us. Notice Christ's response. I mean, normally what happens is Jesus will heal somebody right on the spot, right? But that's not what happens in this passage. Look at what it says. And when Jesus saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priests. I mean, on the surface, you said to herself, like, what good would that do? <laughs> you know? Jesus, heal us. Uh, go, go see the priest. Go see the pastor. Like, w- w- what's, what's going on there? Well, when you read Leviticus 14, verses 1 to like 32. It's a a huge portion of scripture. There is a a whole procedure that was established for individuals who had skin disorders and diseases, and for whatever reason, they went away. Either God healed them, or whatever the case may be. There was a whole procedure established, and, and what you would have to do is, first of all, the priest would have to come, and he'd have to examine you, and then he'd have to say, OK, I've looked at all your skin. OK, it looks pretty good. Now we're going to do this really strange kind of custom. They would take a bird, two birds. They would kill the one bird, and they would dip the, the blood of that dead bird in, in this living bird and take up and some other things. And they would let that other bird go. Whole procedure. And then he would say, OK, now you're clean. And then you'd have to go home, and you'd have to shave everything off, burn all your clothes, get rid of them, wash yourself. And even then, you were declared clean because he had looked at you. But you still had to wait seven days. Couldn't actually go home yet. Then after seven days, you'd go back before that priest again. And this time, you'd take two lambs because you're going to do two different offerings. And you'd go through a whole process of offerings. And finally, at the end of that, he'd have you shave all your hair again, change all your clothes again, and finally say, all right, You can go home. Leviticus 14 goes through that whole long story. So here's Jesus talking to these ten men from a distance, and they say, Jesus, mercy us. Be merciful to us. And he says, go see the priests, which was Christ's way of saying, you'll be fine. Because the only reason you go to the priest is because you've been healed. Now, I want to give these guys some high marks. Because the Bible says this. And it came about that as they were going, they were cleansed. There at the end of verse 14. And so, you know, you have to give them some high marks because you know what? At least they turned at that moment and they did what he said. What would that have been like? I mean, would you love to hear the conversation? Ken, go to the priest. What did he say? to go to the pre run, We don't have anything else to do today. Let's go. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. What, what do they say amongst themselves? Well, I don't know. Let's just do. It. So they turn, and at some point, as they're beginning to go, one guy looks down at his hand, and he notices his fingers back. And the, guy, the other guy says, "Hey, that, you know that hole in my face where it was oozing? It's like, where is that?" And they, hey, look, and they start looking at each other. And can you imagine what that would have been like? Hey, look at this. What about and Pulls up his, I don't know, pulls up his leg. Like, look at my leg. You can't believe it. Hey, you know, and they, they just they go through this whole process and they don't realize it's gone. The, 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 the whole thing is gone. Now, do you ever wonder why Luke didn't stop the story there? He could have. I mean, that's kind of what happens in Luke chapter 5. There's this incredible healing, and Jesus there tells him to go see the priest and then just kind of drops the story. But the great, one of the great surprises of this passage is what happened in verses 15 to 19, something that sets us back. So notice, notice what the text says. Look at verse 15. Now, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And then the text says, and he was a Samaritan. Oh, that's interesting. Ten guys moving one way, all of a sudden, my goodness, it's God. Whoa! Whoa! And one guy turns back, falls down at Christ's feet, and he thanks him. And the text tells us in the process, he glorifies God. And he's a Samaritan. Which probably means the other nine were what? Probably means the other nine were all Jews. And um, you've got to understand something. Um, Samaritans if you tell a story normally Samaritans aren't going to be the heroes. Not for Jews. I mean one of the ancient historians by the name of Josephus tells us a fair amount about the Samaritans. Let me just tell you a couple of things. Tells us that the Samaritans were half-breeds. Half Jew, half Gentile. Living more in kind of the northern kingdom. And he also goes on to tell us they had a way of always using that to their advantage. So there was times when a a ruling nation, when the the, the nation came back into the land, a ruling nation over them um, was doing something positive toward the Jews, and then the Samaritans would say, hey, we're Jewish too. But there were other times, like when Antiochus Epiphanes came in and wiped out the Jews and changed their practice, Samaritans said, hey, we're not Jews. I mean, not us. Josephus says, man, they're just so inconsistent in the way they do that. And then they went and they built their own temple at Mount Gerizim. And so there was this constant tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. And then one of the, one of the rulers of the Jews, after they came back from the land, a guy by the name of John Hyrcanus before the Romans took over, he one time went in there and just wiped out the temple. So later, several decades later, the Jews thought, I mean, the Samaritans thought it might be kind of interesting. So they went into the Jewish temple. You know, everything's supposed to be pure. While nobody was looking, they snuck in, and they threw human bones all around the temple precinct, which means the whole thing was considered impure impure for a period of time. And the Jews were so mad. And there was another time that several Jews were on their way down to the Passover feast, passing through Samaria, and the Samaritans killed them. I mean, this is the world of the Jews and the Samaritans. That's why back in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is going through Samaria, and he's, he's introducing himself to some of the, the villagers, and some of them are just turning away from him. And James and John said, hey, we got a great idea, Lord. How about if we pray down fire down, and we'll just like wipe this whole thing right out? I mean, they're Samaritans after all. Like, get rid of them, you know? So th- there was this kind of mentality Well, Jesus didn't feel that way at all, did he? Matter of fact, do you remember in Luke chapter 10 when he tells a story of a man that's beaten on the side of the road? And who comes through first? A Levite? I'm sorry, a priest? Who comes by second? A Levite? Well, you're hearing that story. You're probably thinking the next guy he's going to mention will just be like a normal Jew comes by, but who is it instead? A Samaritan, a good knight, what's he doing? Jesus, and he turns the guy's world upside down. You would use a Samaritan as a hero of a story. Doesn't make any sense. Because it makes all the sense in the world when you know that Christ's love reaches out to all. So this man comes back, and we find out as he falls down and he worships Christ that he's one of those <laughs> half-braids. And that's fine to Christ. Notice, though, what Jesus says. Look at his disappointment in verse 17 and 18. He has a series of questions. And Jesus answered and said, were there not 10 cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who turned back to give glory to God except this foreigner? And I've thought about that. And I don't have answers to all this, but I'll at least least make some suggestions. Um, Why didn't the nine turn back? Do you ever wonder? Now, Now, I have to tell you at the end of the day, I don't know. I mean, the text doesn't tell us. What I know is whatever excuse they had, it wasn't good enough. Could it be that as they were on their way and they were healed and everything was fine, that they thought, man, i got to go home. i got to see my wife. I, mean, I think that way, won't you? I mean, in all, in all fairness, I mean, you know, the guy's probably thinking, i got to get home. Or maybe somebody else is saying, hey, look, he did tell us we have to go see the priest, so we better stay on the way to the priest. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's a little legalist there. It's a good guy who said, let's just do that. Who knows? Who knows? They could have had all kinds. Or, or maybe somebody thought to themselves, look, I'm healed now. I could care less how I was healed or by whom I was healed. I only care that I'm healed. Perhaps that was true, too. Or perhaps a mix of those and others. The point is, they didn't return. And no excuse was good enough. So Jesus asked these series of questions. Notice then, verse 19. And he said, Rise. <clears throat> go your way, your faith has made you well, or you could translate it, your faith has saved you. Now, I have to tell you, just reading through Luke's gospel, that term, your faith has saved you, can mean a whole host of things. Sometimes it means your faith, God was responding to your faith, and God has physically healed you. That's that's true. You will find occasions of that in Luke's gospel. Fair enough. But more often than not, you know what it means? Your faith has spiritually saved you. And I would argue in this text, it's more the second than the first. Here is a man that comes back and worships and thanks Christ. And in worshiping and thanking Christ, he is recognizing who Christ is, isn't he? And in that recognition, he becomes a Christian. Think about what it was like between the time when this guy got up and the time he went to bed. He woke up a hellbound sinner with no hope and totally helpless in this world, going nowhere. He went to bed a forgiven sinner, saved forever. Heaven is his home the icing on the cake, he was healed too. Lord. This guy didn't have a clue that morning what he was getting into, did he? No. <laughs> but everything is turned on its head because of Jesus Christ. Three, uh, three quick observations, a little story, and we'll be done. Three observations. The first one is this. As I read through this story, it really struck me. It is possible for anyone to depreciate God's grace. When you think of the nine, whatever their reasons, whatever their logic, you had nine individuals who did not give God the honor he so so deserved. And you know what in the text? He so desired mean, Christ is amazed that they don't give him what he deserves and what he desires when um when my kids were really young grand my uh, my parents would come over or or sherry's or whatever the case may be and and they would get gifts you know from from the grandparents and and they'd open it up and oh it you know it's that water pistol that they've been waiting for i mean Wow, Grandma and Grandpa, that's so cool. And what do they do? They open it up, and they're amazed by it, and they run off to their room to, to fill it up with water and to shoot one of their siblings as quickly as they can, or whatever, you know. But but it's all about that, isn't it? And what we normally had to do is, as they were running off, shh, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Go thank Grandma and Grandpa. Oh, okay. Thank you, Grandma and Grandpa. And then they're off again, right? <laughs> hey, come on. We, we have kids. We know what they do. What the nine did. They received the gift and they neglected the giver. I thought in my own life how often I do that. I get up and, and we all have aches and pains and some of us have more difficult illnesses than others. I understand all that. We wake up in the morning and there is so much to be thankful for. We, we, we look around at the fact that God's given us life for another day. Food on the table. Individuals around us that love us. And the Bible tells us in James chapter 1 that every single gift, every single act of goodness that you experience is a gift from God. Everyone. Because he's the unchanging God that wants to do good to his people. Does he allow difficulties and stresses and pains and sorrows and all that into our lives? Absolutely. But will it be forever, not for his people? And God, at the end of the day, is a good God. When you start in Genesis, you find out it's the first thing Satan goes after, that God is not good. And all the way through the scripture, we find out this is a gracious, good God who has given us his very son. No, 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 God is good. And yet I forget that. And I kind of live sometimes like I deserve these gifts. And I don't deserve any of them. So it's possible for anyone to depreciate God's grace. I mean, in this text you would have expected the Samaritans to be the ones that went on their own way and the the Jew to come back. But everything gets reversed in God's kingdom, doesn't it? So it's possible for anyone to depreciate God's grace. Secondly, it's possible for anyone to receive God's grace. Sometime when you read through Luke's gospel in particular, stop and notice... All of the people that should be on the very fringes of the culture—you know, the, the less, less—the uh, people that nobody else really cares about. Notice how many times Christ comes in contact with them, and how they become models and examples of His own people. And it's the Jews who reject, and it's the sick, and it's the Samaritans and it's the sinners, and it's the tax collectors, and it's, it's those despicable women in and and Luke 7, etc., etc. They're the ones that come into the kingdom. Because Luke is reminding us again and again, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've experienced in the past. None of that matters. What matters is that you realize who he is for who he is. And you come down, come before him, and you fall before him, and you recognize him as the Lord and Savior of the world. It's all it takes. It's all it takes. And God says, anyone can come and thank me. Third thing I learned in this passage is that Christ deserves and desires our thanks for his incredible grace. Um, Here's an old song I used to sing as a boy. Count your blessings. You know the song? I'm not going to sing it to you. Heavens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Oh, that's, so, that's just that a trite little song. Yeah, but it's got a good message, folks. When God's people have their hearts tenderized by constantly being people of thanksgiving, you know, it changes your perspective on everything. It just does. Oh, we should ignore the pain and the difficulties. Of, life? of course not. We should act like they're not there. No, you have a whole series of lament psalms in the psalms, which are all about being open and honest with God about those things. Of course. But there's a whole bunch of psalms in the, book of, uh, in the book of psalms. There's a whole bunch of them that are just cut loose and praise God. I mean, clap, raise your hands, dance, whatever it takes, man, just cut loose. Right? Glory, glory. And you find both because that is life experience, folks. Sometimes we just struggle, and it's it, it, we do. And other times he says, look, look at all the great things God has done for you, starting with his son, and cut loose and praise him. You know why? Not only does Christ deserve it, he desires it. All right, go figure that. God doesn't need us, and yet he wants us, like, just, yeah, yeah. you know, figure that one out. But it's true. So I hope, by God's grace, that you will develop a thankful heart. And start with simple ways. Get up every morning and thank Him. And every time something good happens to you today, not every time, but try to, say, thank you, Jesus. Just, and then go on. Just, just go on. But you know what? It has a way of softening our hearts. Those who know him for who he is can't help but constantly thank him for what he does. I want to end with a little story that's really taken me back. It's a pastor by the name of Martin Rinkert. He lived way back in 1586 and died in 1649, so nobody in here knows him. If you do, I'd love to talk to you. Let me me just read one paragraph about this man's life. I find it to be fascinating. German pastor Martin Rinkert served in the walled town of Ellensburg during the horrors of the 30-year war from 1618 to 1648. Ellensburg became an overcrowded refuge for the surrounding area. The fugitives suffered from epidemic and from famine. At the beginning of 1637, the year of the great pestilence. There were four ministers in Ellensburg, but one abandoned his post for healthier areas and could not be persuaded to return. Pastor Rinkert officiated at the funerals of the other two. As the only pastor left, he often conducted services for as many as 40 to 50 persons a day, some 4,480 in all. In May of that year, his own wife died. By the end of the year, the refugees had to be buried in trenches without services. Yet living in a world dominated by death, Pastor Rinkert wrote the following prayer for his children to offer to the Lord. And it's one that we know. It's a table prayer. Now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices who wondrous things hath done in whom this world rejoices, who from our mother's arms hath led us on our way with countless gifts of love, and still as ours today. How do you do that? Do you deny the pain around you? No. You look at a good and gracious God, even in the midst of difficulty. Father,